It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 16 is where we're going to be at. Uh, we've been walking through this series on the names of God and uh, excited to jump into this one. This is uh, one of those that, uh, if I can be truthfully honest, uh, I almost skipped uh, because as I was getting into the passage, the passage was awkward enough where I'm like, I don't know if I want to study it, <laughs> should be told. Uh, but as it is often true with the Word, as you get into a passage and you really desire to seek the Lord, uh, it is just profound to me how He just unveils Himself. And it just in light of that, I'm just really excited to talk this morning um, about this name. So we're looking at Genesis 16, and it's the name... Uh, some people translate or say it uh, Elroy, but I believe it's pronounced Elroy, uh, but it means the God who sees me, which is a beautiful thought, even just in the name itself. And it just even lay the groundwork of where we're heading. I just want to read all of Genesis chapter 16 with you, just so we can kind of get the whole lay of the land, see the context, and then we'll actually talk about uh, the name itself. So Genesis 16, uh, this is how it starts. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian servant woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, Yahweh has shut up my womb from bearing children. Please go into my servant woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now, pause really quick. This is going to sound incredibly awkward because this is not our culture. Praise the Lord. Okay, but in ancient culture, if, if as a woman, right, one of the blessings that a woman, I'm not talking modern day stuff, okay, so get off all this, okay, but in ancient day, uh, the value and worth of a woman was often seen through her children. And so here's Sarah, right, Sarah, who eventually becomes Sarah, and she can't have children. So there is a shame thing. Here's Abram, which means this uh, blessed father which must have been a mockery because his name even bespeaks of this idea that, ah, I've got children. And if someone comes up and goes, hey, your name's Abram, how many children do you have? None. So here is, here is the cultural thing. And, and you see this, uh, for example, with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. You, you see this thing begin to repeat. But the idea culturally was that if I had a servant uh, and, and, and I can't bear children, then I can give my servant to the husband, and in so doing, he will sleep with her, she'll get pregnant, and supposedly, from what I discovered, uh, is if when she's giving birth, if she sits on the lap of the owner, and in this case Sarah, then that child is actually hers. Now, I, I don't know what you want to do with all that, but I'm glad this is not our culture. The idea, though, is Sarah's saying, look, I, I can't have children. And Abraham, we know that God has promised. So why, why, don't you just, why don't you take a night, sleep with Hagar, and at least we'll have a child. Now we understand that they're, they're going about this in a very fleshly sense. In fact, this becomes a picture of the flesh, not a working of the spirit, right? And yet you begin to see the, that contrast between Ishmael and Isaac, the first and the second, the flesh and the spirit, that, that whole idea. So just culturally, I just want you to not get awkward as we walk into this. Maybe I just made it worse. <laughs> you know? 
But it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. Then she saw that she had conceived, so her mistress became contemptible in her sight. In other words, she had this mislike, uh, con- contemptible feeling uh, for Sarah. So Sarah said, Abram, may the violence done to me be upon you. I gave my servant woman into your embrace, but she saw that she conceived, so I became contemptible in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. And they're not having good marriage seasons right now, right? But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant woman is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your sight. Now, this really bothers me because... Abram's passive. He's just like, all right, do whatever you want to do. And I'm not going to read into that, but there's, there's layers to this text that I have horrible issues with, which is why I wanted to skip it, okay? But it will get beautiful, I promise. This is, this is such an incredible story. So Sarai afflicted Hagar, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And the angel said, or the messenger, which is a better translation than even angel, but the messenger said, Hagar, Sarai, servant woman, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the messenger, the angel of Yahweh, said to her, return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, the messenger of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to be counted. And the, and the messenger of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. Isn't that a great description? His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will dwell in the face of all of his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, El Roi. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now Abram was sixty, or sorry, eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Awkward story. And there's so many things I don't like about the story. I don't like the fact that Abram's passive. I don't like the fact that Sarai gave Hagar to Abram, and then Hagar had this contempt, and then Sarah abused. This is like a drama. Like a horrible soap opera just took place. And I, I don't, there's so many things I don't like about this passage. But as you get into this, what, begins in, what becomes interesting to me is here's Hagar, and she's in the middle of all this distress. She's a nobody. She's a slave. And so she's like, I'm, I'm running away. And so she runs off, and she's going to head back to her home, right? Because she's an Egyptian. She's heading off to Egypt. And she's about to cross the desert. And along the way, she stops at this little oasis, this spring. And the messenger of Yahweh shows up. And he says, where, where are you going? What are, what are you doing? And she says, uh, I'm running away. I've had all these problems. I'm being mistreated. I'm leaving. I'm just, I'm getting out of here. I'm just, 
And the messenger says, I want you to go back. Nah, that's... If you were someone in her situation, that had to have been difficult. Yeah, oh messenger, do you not recognize if I go back, I'm probably, hey, there's, there's, there's abuse, hey, there's mistreat, there's, hey, they don't understand me, I'm just a servant, I'm just... And there, there's all this stuff going on. Now, it's really interesting, in the middle of the scene, Hagar realizes she's not talking to an angel. So I, love, I love this. And, and we've gone over this before on several of these. But it's interesting to me, typically when the angel of the Lord shows up, we discover it's not an angel. It's God himself in physical form. And for the sake of the students, we'll talk about that on Thursday. But there's this beautiful thing where God shows up and he's talking to Hagar. And Hagar, at the end of this conversation, she goes, I have been talking with Yahweh himself. And she gives Yahweh a name, El Royi, the God who sees me. Uh, this just tickled me to no end. Uh, look at what, oh, let me, before I get into that, uh, look at some of these name meanings. Ishmael means God hears. Isn't this a beautiful thought? Here's Hagar who's running in the desert and in the middle of her affliction, in the middle of her, you know, having all this, all, of all these issues, She's like, God, do you even hear me? God, are you even there? Here, here is the God whom my, serve, or my master, Abram and Sarah, pronounce, and yet where is this God? And God says, I hear you. I, I, I see your affliction. And isn't it neat that God says, because I've seen your affliction, I want you to name that son in your room Ishmael, which means I hear that. And then she turns around and says, oh, he hears me, but I see him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And so she names the well that is there. It's the well of the living one who sees me. And she gives Yahweh the name El Roi, which means the God who sees me. Now, look at what one of the scholars said about all this. Just thought this was so beautiful. He says, Hagar is fascinated more by the origin of the revelation than by the content of the revelation. In other words, okay, God gave her some great stuff, but she is overwhelmed by the fact that it's God himself. Her attitude here is remarkably different from that in the beginning of the chapter. No longer is she gloating over her procreating abilities. The text does not state that she called upon the name of Yahweh, an expression we saw in chapter 4, chapter 12, and 19 more times in the Old Testament. Get this. Rather, it states that she called the name or she named Yahweh who spoke with her. Hagar actually confers on deity a name. Now ponder this. No other character in the Old Testament, male or female, does that. It is not unusual for mortals to give names to family members, to animals, to sacred sites, but never to one's God, with the exception of Hagar. Her name for God is El Roi, a God of seen. Isn't that an interesting thought? Uh, we have all these instances as we've been walking through the names of God where God declares his own names. In other words, God shows up and says, I am Jehovah Rapha, right? I am the God who heals. And God gives us his names. Then you have these encounters like, like Abraham in chapter 22, where God does this miraculous provision and spares Isaac that it says that Abram called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. 
And the location becomes so synonymous with the presence of God that that becomes the name of God. But Abram doesn't call God Jehovah Jireh. He calls the place Jehovah Jireh. But it becomes God's name. So this is the only case in the Old Testament then where you have a woman who was a slave, who was mistreated, who was running away, who looks at God and says, I'm giving you a name. Yahweh, you're the God who sees me. And you just told me that you heard my affliction because that's going to be the name of my son. But you don't just merely hear my need, you see it. And I don't know if you recognize there's something incredibly personable in this name because it's not just that God sees, he does, but the emphasis in the Hebrew is that God not just sees, he sees me, says Hagar. That's beautiful. Uh, Look at what another scholar said. He says, At the spring, an angel of the Lord found her and told her to go back to your mistress and submit to her. Was this proper advice? Yes, for three reasons. Just thought these were interesting. Number one, it was for her own protection because Hagar could not have survived the trip to Egypt. But even if by some unusual circumstance she would have made it, a newly born babe would not. In other words, she would not have had enough water. She would not have had the protection being a woman out on her own in the middle of the desert. Second, God is always more concerned with attitudes or with the motives than with what has caused them. In, in other words, okay, Hagar, I recognize that you, you've been mistreated. Hey, Hagar, I, I recognize that this isn't the ideal situation, but I want to deal with your attitude and your heart and your motive, not the circumstances that's put you here. Isn't that interesting? And you can also see Genesis 4, 6, Matthew 5, 21 through 22, or James 4, 3. In other words, God always wants reunion and forgiveness, which in Hagar's case would not be possible unless she returned. And third, as events had turned out, everyone had lost. Sarai had lost her maid. Hagar had lost her home. Abram had lost a child he was hoping would give him the heir that had been promised. just thought that was really intriguing. I want you to ponder this. Do you realize that Hagar is mistreated, she is forgotten, and she is quite insignificant? And yet it is that individual that God says, I see you. I hear you. See, I know know God can talk with the really important people like Abraham, but what about the lowly servant who's been mistreated, who's been forgotten, who's running out in the desert, Does God hear and see that individual? Yes. In fact, that's the individual that the only place in the Old Testament that actually gives God a direct name. And I I find that incredibly encouraging because it doesn't matter your situation or your circumstance. Do you recognize that God knows you? God sees you personally. He cares for you Yeah, he cares for the world. Yeah, there's this, but we're talking individual, you. I like what James Boyce said about this. He says, we might wonder if God really takes an interest in normal or even disadvantaged people like ourselves. The answer, of course, is that God does. Unless we think that the work of God is for the mighty alone, we are introduced in Genesis 16 for the first time 
to a person who really has no stature in the world's terms and yet is the clear object of God's love and provision. She is a woman. She is a slave. The slave of Abram's wife, Sarai. That's encouraging to me. And in other words, I don't have to be super important for God to see me. Hey, I could be nobody. I could be a nothing. I could be a mistreated. I could be a forgotten. Hey, I could be running on the backside of the desert. And God says, I see you. I, can, I, I, I hear you. Do you recognize that God sees? This is so replete throughout the Bible. And I'm just going to give you a whole series of verses. I'm not going to comment, hopefully, on them. <laughs> but just listen to this idea that God sees. He watches. He, he, he's attentive. And by the way, this whole idea of, that God sees is really tied closely with the idea of Jehovah Jireh, the God of provision, right? Provision, this idea that he sees beforehand, that he sees the need, that he makes the provision. Why? Because he sees. But I, I just want you to hear the tone of this idea that God can and has this overwhelming desire to see. God sees. So look at this. Exodus 3.7. Yahweh said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. Second Chronicles 69, for the, for the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. And Job Elihu is sitting there and he says this, for his eyes, speaking of God, his eyes are upon the ways of a man and he sees all of his steps. In Psalm 11 verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Psalm 32, 8. I will give you insight and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15 and verse 18. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the heart of them all, he who understands all their works, Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness or his hesed. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. Psalm 102, verse 19 through 20. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, Yahweh gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death. Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. In other words, he keeps his eyes open. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of Yahweh are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 6. He says, But you, when you pray, go to your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, God sees even the secret things of your actions and your heart. Or look what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 10. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In other words, Jesus says, hey, you're not overlooked. You're not forgotten. He intimately knows you. He knows the hairs on your head or the lack thereof. Like he, he knows intimately you. Do you know how awesome that is? He sees you. Or look what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 4. He's talking about don't adorn yourselves without word adornment. He says, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and a quiet spirit. He's talking about humility, which is precious in the sight of God. God loves the sight of the humble. Ah, there's a really fascinating passage in light of all of this, and it comes from Hebrews chapter 4. But it's this idea being laid bare. God sees us. Not just the great, he sees the least. He sees you. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, there's this whole idea of rest. Entering into the rest. Rest, 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 rest. And then it comes to verse 12, which is the verse you know really well, which says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Love that passage. That what does the word of God do? The word of God will pierce your life. It's like a, and I love the idea of the rest, because imagine an operating table. If you go to the hospital, you rest on the operating table. And it's as you rest on the operating table that the, that the surgeon with his scalpel, with his knife, this, you know, this piercing thing, will cut you to pieces. Why? To bring forth life. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, you're an intern to the rest. Rest, 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 rest. And then a strange, it feels like a whiplash. And the word of God is active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And you're like, what? I thought we were talking about rest. We are. Would you rest upon the word of God? And as you rest on the word, what is the word going to do to you? It's going to pierce you. It's going to cut you to little pieces. Why? To bring forth life. Now, it's interesting. All growing up, I've always heard that Hebrews 4.12 is talking about this. About the book. The word of God in text. And I think that's true. I, I, think that's, I think it's included in the passage. But in the context, it's really interesting to me that I think it's actually talking more than a book. Because look at verse 13. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Pause. His sight. Do you realize actually what verse 12 is talking about? is the word of God, but it's the word of God in person. That Jesus, let me go back and read this. Jesus is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now he does that through his word. So hey, I have no problem saying the word of God in text is active and living and sharper than double-edged sword. Hey, I have no problem with that. But do you realize that in the context, it's talking about a person? And you realize that as you come to the word, this word in text and in person is going to cut you to pieces. 
He's going to reveal the, the depths of your being. So look at verse 13 again. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are uncovered and laid bare, means made naked, to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Do you hear what it's being said? <clears throat> Here I am, I, I come to the word, and what is the living active word doing? It, it's cutting my, my life down to the very depths of my being. I mean, it is piercing my soul and just cutting me to pieces. Why? It's confronting me with truth. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, and you can't hide from that because he sees you. No creature can hide from his sight. In fact, what's happening in the passage, that as I come into the word and it's piercing my, in the depths of my being, it's, it's revealing something. And as verse 13 says, I am being uncovered and stripped naked is the idea. Now, I don't know about you, but that's awkward. Because what I don't want to do is be stripped naked. But do you recognize what happens as you come to the word? As you approach the word, if you are walking in humility and you actually are desiring to know the author and you want to seek his face and you want to know his life, what is he going to do to you? He is going to take his perfect standard of the word and he's going to take your life and measure your life against that standard, that perfect standard of his own life. And what ends up happening is you recognize, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I've seen the perfect holiness of my God. And what's happening in the inner parts of your life? You, through the word, are being stripped naked, folks. You can't hide anything from him. He sees you. And not just what you want him to see, he sees you, the very depths of your being, you, the heart and the motive, you, the inner thought life, you. He sees you. See, isn't it interesting in the modern church, uh, it doesn't take very long for us to know the culture of the church. And so we don't want to stand up, but we don't want to sit down and we can put the smile on and hi, how are you? Good to see you. Yes, yes, I'm wonderful. Yes, thank you. Yes, good to see you too. <laughs> you know, and you, just, you go through the motions and, and you, you play church and, and it becomes a religious country club and, and we, we, we do all that stuff and we hide. Well, if the people around me actually knew. But folks, we can't do that with Jesus. Because he sees you. He sees the innermost parts of your being. He sees the thoughts and the intentions. He sees your motives. Hey, no one else may be able to see your thought life in the last 24 hours, but he does. You know that really good thing that you did last week? Where everyone was like, woo, that's, that's phenomenal, well done. Yeah, he actually sees the motive of why you did that. And he's judging you less on the action than on the motive of why you did the good deed. Because I can do a lot of good deeds, but do them for the horrible motives. And me doing a good deed could be sin. Why? Because the motive of my heart is sinful. He sees me, folks. 
And when it, isn't it a scary thought that, that, I, that as I come to the Word, which is living and active, it, what is it doing? It's stripping me down. Everything is laid bare before Him. I am uncovered by the Word, and He sees me. In totality sees me. Not sees what I want to show. He sees me. My heart, my thought, my motive, my actions, my attitudes. He sees me. Now, I don't know about you, but the moment I begin to realize that he, he sees me, and I know we know this, but he sees me, that's a little convicting, isn't it? In fact, that's even what the writer of Hebrews says at the end of verse 13. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare or stripped naked to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Gulp? So I've got to give an account to the one whom I can't hide from. See, if I give my, an account to you, I, I can fudge it. I, I can spin it. Well, here's, here's really what I was thinking. Here's really what my motive is. Here's, God goes, uh-uh, I see you. I know your motive. I know your heart. I know your attitude. I know that thought process. I see it. And I'm going to have to give an account to God, not on what you see, but what he sees. That's convicting, isn't it? And I think if we're all going to be honest, folks, we're all in trouble. Because no creature is hidden from his sight. You can't get out of this one. What hope do we have? Oh, it's the next verse. Look at what, look what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14. Look at this. Look, look how phenomenal this is. Therefore, based on all of this, therefore, he says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession of our faith, folks. Hey, let's hold fast to our faith. Why? Well, for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the conclusion, let us draw near with confidence. Not with trepidation, not with fear, but with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy, hesed, and find grace to help in time of need. So ponder this. I come to the word, and what does the word do? Cuts me to pieces. It goes to the very depths of my being and literally strips me down. And Jesus, the person and the word, right, the text, is literally confronting my life and says, I need that. I see that. I, I, I see that too. I, that, I see that. I see that. And the conclusion is like Isaiah, who sees the perfections, the per perfect standard of God's holiness, the only, the only 
response we have is, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. There is no hope. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, there is hope. We have a high priest. So do you realize that because of what Jesus has done, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can hold fast the confession of our faith. Why? Because he's the only source of mercy and grace that I need. He's the only source of mercy and grace that I'll ever have. That's phenomenal. So it's a little scary if God can see you. But it's really encouraging when the God who sees you actually is going to give you the very thing that you need. Mercy and grace. He sees you stripped down and says, I, I can handle that. That thought process, yeah, I can change that. That motive, yeah, yeah, I can deal with that. That sinful habit that you can't get rid of, yeah, I can change that. And yes, I may be standing stripped down before the Lord and, and he sees the totality of my life, but he sees my need. And he says, I'm the great high priest and you can approach my throne of grace in this time of need and find the mercy and the grace that you desperately require. That's good news. So here's the real question. I, I, this is what I've been wrestling with the last couple of days. I think the question is not, does God see me? Because God sees you. You don't, you don't have a choice. God sees you. I think the better question is, do I want to be seen? God sees you. You can't get out of that one. Hey, there is no creature hidden from his sight, and you will be held accountable to the fact that he sees the innermost parts of your being. So the question is, not does he see me, like a Hagar who's maybe mistreated and forgotten and, and a little, little insignificant and who am I? God says, I see you. So the question is not, God, do you see me? The question is, actually for my own soul, do I actually want to be seen? I, I want to read Psalm 139. Uh, this is a Psalm of David. And I just want you to hear what David is crying out. David is, is recognizing that God sees him. He's recognizing that he can not hide from the eyes of God. God sees him. And yet it's interesting to me that as David is, is looking at the nature of God saying, God, if I may put words in David's mouth, you are El Royi. You are the God who sees me. David doesn't just say, God, you see me. David says, God, I want you to see me. In fact, strip me down, God. Search my heart. So listen to this. Psalm 139, Psalm of David. Oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. 
You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and you put, me, put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark for you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inner parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Do you hear what David is declaring? He's declaring the very same thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying. God, I can't escape your sight. God, you see me. Where can I go that you wouldn't find me? Where can I hide that you wouldn't see the very innermost depths of my being? I can't go anywhere. God, you see me. But do you hear the plea? The undercurrent of that entire passage? It's not just, God, I don't want you to see me. I'm, I'm trying to find a place where you don't see me. David's saying, God, there is nowhere I could hide. Hey, you have stripped me down. I, I'm, I'm literally standing naked before you. You see the innermost parts of my, of my being. But look at how he finishes the psalm. In verse 23 and 24, David says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. I love what David is doing here. He says, God, I can't hide from you. You see me. Hey, you see the very depths of my being. So then what is, what is the natural result then? If, if I know that God sees me, if I know I'm really stripped naked in his presence, if I know he sees the innermost depths of my being, what is the cry? What is the, what is the ask? What, what is the request that David makes? God, I want to be seen. Search me. Test me, try me, dig deeper. And we're not going to, we don't have time, but, and I encourage you to study this out. But let me just give you a really quick overview of each of these words, these pleas that David makes. He says, search me, which means to explore, search out, consider in detail, spy out, investigate. God, you know what I want you to do? I, I want you to search me. Hey, don't leave me alone. Dig deeper. 
And not just search me, but know me, to know, to notice, to learn, to be cognizant or aware. I love this word. The word in Hebrew is yada. The Greek translation of this passage uses the word gnosko. And we'll talk more about that uh, this afternoon for the students. Uh, But gnosko is not just an academic understanding of something. The word has this idea of intimate and experiential and relational kind of knowing. So this isn't like David looking at God saying, God, I want you to know me, but hey, just pick up a book, read some details, or hey, look at me from over there. David says, God, would you Would you dig down deep? Would you examine the very depths of my being? Would you search out my heart? And would you get so tight with me that you just, you know me? He then says, test me or or try me, which means to search out, to examine, to prove. It's to put to the test in order to ascertain the nature of something, including its imperfections, its faults, or other qualities. This is a word that is used to test metals by melting them down. Do you hear what David is saying? God, God, would, would you take me like gold or like silver and refine me? Hey, would you test me? Would you actually see if there's any impurity within my life? Hey, would you just, just go at it, Jesus? I mean, just go crazy and just examine, test this thing, prove my life. And then he goes back and says, no, uses that same word for no, my anxious thoughts. Hey, would you get into the very depths of my knowing, my heart, how I feel, my emotions? And then he says, would you see me to see, to understand, to spy, to reveal, to look, to perceive, to examine or inspect? God, I know you see me, but would you see me? And what is, what is David asking God to see in him? He, he makes a contrast. He says, Lord, I want you to see if there's any hurtful way within me. That word hurtful, it's interesting. It means an anxious toil or a hardship, distress, an offense, wickedness. Or I thought this was interesting. It can also be translated idolatry. What David is saying is, God, would you actually see, would you go through my life and would you see if there's anything in my life that's not according to your life, according to your word, according to your nature? God, God, is there anything Is there any anxiety in my life? Is there any distress in my life? Is is there any wickedness in my life? Is there anything that's hurting you? God, God, is there any idolatry in my soul? See if I'm walking on a way of idolatry, a way of wickedness, a a way of hurting you, because I don't want it. Uh, Last summer, we were working through the Soldier of Series, and here was my working definition for idolatry. So when David says, I want you to see if there's any idolatrous way within me, here's, here's the best definition of idolatry I, I could come across. It's looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. Hey, God, would you search the way that I'm living? And is there anyone or anything that I'm looking to other than you to meet my needs? God, would you see me and see if I'm on a hurtful, destructive, wicked path of idolatry? And then he says, not just see if I'm on that path, but then lead me in the everlasting way. And that word lead me means to lead or conduct, to be in charge of, to guide, to direct the movements of. Hey, God, would you 
grab me by the hand and will you just guide me down your way? God, would you, would you take me and will you bring me, uh, would you direct the movements of my life down your path? So with all that being considered, look at what David says. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful, wicked, idolatrous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I, I really liked how the Lexham translation translates it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is in me the worship of false gods and lead me in the way everlasting. Or the, the New Living translates it this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Or the Net translation says it this way. Examine me and probe my thoughts. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any idolatrous tendency in me and lead me in the reliable ancient path. Can I remind all of us? God sees you. He is El Roy. He doesn't just see, he sees you. And that same God who sees came in the flesh. And not just sees, but he is the great high priest. That though you are stripped naked before his side and though you're going to have to give an account of what he sees, do you realize there is great hope because you can receive mercy and grace in your time of need from the very one who sees you. And if you're going to be held accountable to what he sees, don't you think the greatest gift and the greatest blessing is to actually receive mercy and grace from the one who sees and is going to judge I don't receive mercy and grace from an outside source. I receive mercy and grace from the source itself. But the question really is, do I want to be seen? Wouldn't it be interesting if I recognize that God doesn't just merely see me? What if the cry in my heart was, God, search me. Go deeper. Test my life. Search me out. Know me intimately. God, would you, would you see if there's any idolatry or wickedness in my life? And instead, God, would you grab me by the hand and would you direct my movements and lead me in the way of righteousness, your everlasting way, the way that is according to your life? And what's really neat is, do you recognize what that way is? It's Jesus, because he's the way. Wouldn't it be interesting if all of us just humbly postured ourselves before the God that sees and doesn't really declare the fact that he's El Roy, the God that sees, but our request is God, search even deeper. Let nothing be hidden from your gaze. And if there is anything in my life, if there's any sin, if there's any wickedness, if there's any thought patterns, if there's any motives or attitudes, God, here I am, change me. I need your grace and mercy in my time of need. That's great news. Let's pray. 
Uh, Lord, I just love the fact that you are the God who sees. Not just who sees, but sees me. Lord, I, I, I genuinely, like David, want to be stripped naked in your sight. Lord, I don't want to hide. Lord, I, I don't want to have my little corner where I say, hey God, you can have everything else, but don't touch the corner. Hey, don't go in the closet. Don't, don't pull up in that drawer. God, I, I want you to scrutinize everything in my life. And anything and everything that doesn't look like you, I want you to purge. Lord, I love the fact that the God who sees me is the very God who gives me the mercy and the grace in my time of need. So like David, Lord, could you search me and know my heart? Would you try me and know my innermost thoughts? Would you see if there's any idolatrous tendencies or hurtful, wicked ways within me? And would you lead me in you? the way itself. Lord, thank you that nothing is hidden from your sight. And from the least to the greatest, you see us. Lord, that is so marvelous. And Lord, I don't want to hide. I don't want to justify. I just want to come to you, the one who sees me and receives the mercy and grace that I need. We trust you. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.